Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 102. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide and have been a full-time outdoor instructor and guide since founding the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School in 1999. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident in the natural world through our bushcraft and guide training semester programs and multi-week canoe and snowshoe expeditions. You can check out the show notes to all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. If you're interested in learning more about our college-accredited and GI Bill-approved programs, visit the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School on the web at jackmtn.com. And check out our online network and digital learning academy at bushcraftschool.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Smith. It is the 2nd of May here in Masardis, Maine. And this week, again, I'm going to read several chapters from my book, On the Trail. So without any further ado, we'll jump right into a 1999 Allagash Wilderness Waterway trip, followed up by a 2001 St. John River trip. Hope you enjoy it. On the Trail, Chapter 3, The Allagash River, Northern Maine. I spent the last week of August 1999 paddling Maine's Allagash Wilderness Waterway with fellow Master Maine guide Ray Rietze, Jr. Ray has been guiding trips on the Allagash and other Maine waterways for over 15 years. His guide service and school of wilderness living, Earthways, is located in Canaan, Maine. Ray grew up in Maine under the tutelage of a native man who taught Ray the life ways of his people and the skills of living in the North Woods. Ray passes on these skills through his guided trips, wilderness living skills courses, and philosophy courses. Our party of eight traveled in four of Ray's handmade wood canvas canoes. We spent the first night at Churchill Dam and put in the next morning just below Chase Rapids at Bissonette Bridge. The first morning was spent getting used to the river, the canoes, and our paddling partners. There were many rocks to be avoided, but the sun was shining and the birds were singing and we were all happy to be where we were. We paddled to Chisholm Brook, where we stopped for lunch. After lunch, Ray got everyone out on the water and taught the basics of paddling and poling. The experience level of the participants ranged from complete novice to experienced whitewater paddlers, but everyone learned something. As the wind was blowing, we decided to spend the rest of the day there, have dinner, then push off across Umsaskis and Long Lakes around dusk, when the wind died down. After a big pasta dinner, we loaded up and pushed on. Umasaskis Lake was still choppy, but was calming quickly. We paddled into Long Lake at dusk and continued north until it was almost dark. The wind had completely died, and the water was still and peaceful. We stopped at Sam's and set up camp in the near darkness. The following morning, temperatures were in the low 40s, so a hot breakfast of oatmeal, herb tea, and coffee was welcomed. Long Lake was covered in a thick fog, but by the time we packed up and were ready to go, the fog had pulled away from shore. We paddled into the fog, watching it slowly burn off around us. At Long Lake Dam, we unloaded our gear for the short portage. After a short rest, we were back on the water heading for Cunliffe Island. 
We arrived in the early afternoon and quickly set up camp and had lunch. Looking around camp, I found some black bear tracks. She had walked over the pre-existing raccoon tracks, so I pictured uh, the bear in my mind and the raccoon having a fish and the bear chasing him. Across the river from camp, Adam found a bear skull. We looked at it for a long time. Ray wanted to see the bear tracks, so I showed him and Adam where they were. After he looked at them, he smiled, then pointed to a smaller track nearby that I had missed. It was a bear cub. A mother and cub had come out of the bushes, walked along the bank, then crossed the river. There was lots of other bear sign in the area, but the combination of the skull and the two sets of tracks made me feel welcomed by the bears. I went with Ray to get firewood, pulling upstream and loaded two canoes with dead, dry wood. When we got back, we started a fire and put dinner on. After dinner, I decided to go for a swim. Leaving the conversations of camp behind, I made my way into the water. Looking upstream, I noticed a cow moose feeding on the aquatic plants about 50 yards upstream. She was looking at me quizzically, trying to figure out what I was. Had I been standing, she would have known me for a human, but all that was out of the water was my head. The rest of me was swimming and hanging onto the bottom. I called out to those in camp that there was a moose in the river, and they all came down to see. They were another 50 yards downstream of me. After a while, I made my way to shore and dried off. I bet that moose is still talking about the funny creature she saw in the river that one evening. The next day we set out early with a long planned, uh, with a long day planned. We navigated the section of river leading into Round Pond without mishap, although it did rain on us a bit. After paddling across Round Pond, there's a series of rapids uh, known as the Round Pond Rips. It was here that disaster struck our party. I was bringing up the rear of the group, pulling slowly down through the rapids. When I came around a bend in the river, I saw one of the 18-foot wood canvas canoes broached on a rock, with a broken gunnel and a hole in the hull. The current had it pinned to the rock, with the ends bent slightly around. The two people on the rock both wore long faces. Looking downstream, I saw Ray pulling up into the rapids. I brought my canoe into an eddy behind a rock and told my partner to keep the boat in the eddy. Getting out of the boat, I made my way to the rock that the canoe was pinned against. Ray was there too, as well as the two who had been in the canoe. We got on one end of the canoe and tried to lift it out of the water with no luck. On our second try, though, we were successful. This was a stroke of luck, though, as there were several tons of pressure pushing the canoe against the rock. We were able to succeed because the canoe wasn't pinned exactly in the middle. Once we had one end free, we could roll it over and examine the damage. There were several holes in the bottom, one gunnel was broken, six ribs were cracked and broken, and several of the planks as well. Ray had a big smile on his face as he explained that we were going to fix it with materials from the forest. We emptied the water out, then flipped the canoe upright. Ray hopped in, pole in hand, and quickly stomped down on the broken ribs to straighten them out, then pulled downstream into a big eddy. When he hopped out of the canoe, we lifted it onto the rocks and put duct tape on the holes. The gear that had been in, in it was transferred to other boats, and we continued on down the river. The broken boat was in a precarious position. The ribs had been straightened out and the holes patched, but the ribs would click quickly buckle if another rock was hit. Carefully, we paddled another mile onto the campsite at Croak Brook. Once there, we had lunch and started a fire to dry out the gear that had been soaked. 
Then Ray, Adam, and I got into the 20-footer and pulled across the river. We had with us an axe and a small homemade buck saw, and each of us had our sheath knives. We found a dry cedar log that was lying on the ground, and using the axe and saw, cut a section from it, then split the section so as only to take the good wood with us. We also gathered three spruce saplings. With our raw materials, we pulled back across the river to the campsite. Using the axe, Ray split blanks for three ribs from the cedar log. Adam and I were busy limbing and peeling the spruce saplings, which were to become a brace for the gunnel. Once we had them cleaned up, we began to shave the wood into a half round to facilitate bending and to have it sit nicely in one place against the canoe. We had this done in about 40 minutes, then began to work on carving a rib from a cedar blank. We ended up carving one rib that night before darkness set upon us, and we soaked it in the river overnight to make it bend easier. In the morning, we checked our cedar rib. It still didn't want to bend just right, so we decided to soak it all day and try it again that night. In its place, we gathered several spruce saplings, limbed and debarked them, then shaved one side of the thick end. Then we bent them into the hull over the ribs and snapped them under the gunnels. We had to pull them out several times and remove more wood to get them to bend just right, but in an hour, we had three spruce helper ribs over the original cedar. We loaded the damaged canoe a bit differently, with two light bags sitting on top of the new spruce ribs. Other than those two bags, it was empty. The 20-footer was loaded with most of the gear the damaged canoe had carried, which gave us more to play with to get the proper downstream heavy trim. We set out that morning confident in the work that we had done. That night we added several more spruce ribs. We never took the time to boil the cedar rib, as the spruce ribs worked great. We did bring it home with us, though, to show others what could be done in the bush with simple tools. The next day we stopped at Michaud Farm to check in with the ranger. She came down to the river to see our field-repaired canoe. After a few crackers, we pushed on to Taylor's Landing. After setting up camp, we cut three more spruce poles for ribs, then had dinner. After dinner, Ray made his famous bush donuts for the group. We ate a bunch of them and saved a bunch more for lunch the next day. Tired from our travels, we all turned in early and slept soundly. The following day, we spent some time exploring the abandoned Moore Farm. A wealth of knowledge, Ray related the history of the place to us. One of my favorite parts about paddling with Ray is that he knows the history of the river and the people who lived there. He knew the last people to live on the farm and told us stories about what they were like and what life was like for them. This living history, rather than book history, made the region come alive. After leaving the farm, we had a short paddle to the portage around Allagash Falls. After carrying our canoes and gear... We went up to look at the falls. Ray told us that two people had gone over the falls. One, a woman, had got her legs caught in a rain poncho and drowned. The other, a man from out of state, had been drunk and fallen into the water above the falls. He floated and swam through and was sitting on the shore below the falls when his companions found him. He had sustained two cracked ribs, but other than that was unhurt. After the falls, we paddled on to Big Brook, where we made camp. There's a spring right next to the camp, and the waters was delicious. Our last morning on the river, we paddled to Allagash Village. It took us about six hours, but soon we were at a local restaurant eating more than we should have. It was an educational trip on many levels, from the local history to repairing a canoe in the bush. The lessons learned from Ray will not soon be forgotten. 
Chapter 4 The St. John River, Northwestern Maine May 14, 2001 I had gotten a late start the day before leaving and spent the night off the road to Rockwood in the back of the pickup. I rose early, anxious to start the trip. After gassing up and getting a cup of coffee in Rockwood, I turned north into the North Main Woods. Travel on the dirt and gravel roads is slower than on the pavement, and there is always the possibility of a washout or hole around the next corner. I arrived at the outlet of 5th St. John Pond a little before 10 a.m. and proceeded to unload my gear. The river, at this point just a stream, was clear and cold, rushing past the bank on its way to the Atlantic in the Bay of Fundy. When I had all my gear set, I laid it next to the canoe. After taking care of the pickup, I walked back to the bank and eased the canoe into the water, then loaded my gear aboard. Stepping into the boat, I pushed myself into the current with the pole. My first few minutes were glorious. The sun shined down on me, the air was warming up, and the river was briskly moving along. I stowed my pole for a paddle, using it to steer around the many obstacles. Looking back, I realized that I was still in the complacent mindset that comes with the long drive. I wasn't alert and on my toes, anticipating the next move. So, lazy and a bit groggy, I paddled down the bending river. At this point, the St. John is a narrow, winding stream with constant quick water and Class 1 rapids. I came around a sharp bend and saw a strainer up ahead. My reactions dulled from the drive, I didn't react quickly enough, and in just a few seconds the bow of my canoe had been caught. The current pushed the rest of the boat quickly around to be trapped by the strainer as well. As this was happening, the last foot or so of my pole became wedged between two branches, bending sharply. Immediately I heard, I heard a loud crack as the top foot was broken off of my pole, and at the same moment the canoe tipped and I was thrown into the water. Any sense of post-drive hangover and laziness was immediately gone when I went into the frigid water. It was an instantaneous transition to full alert. I quickly dragged the boat and my gear to shore, which was only six feet away. My spare paddle continued on downstream, as did the map I had spent half an hour waterproofing. I dumped the water that had collected in my pack, wrung out my clothes, and loaded everything back into the canoe. I opted to stay in my wet clothes, knowing they would soon be dry with my body heat in the sun. I also carved the end of my now shorter pole smooth. Back in the days when I played hockey, I liked it when I got checked early in the game. It woke me up and got my attention. The cold water had accomplished the same thing. I got back into the canoe much more alert, and soon located my paddle. I never found the map. Standing in the canoe the rest of the way to the dead water above Baker Lake, I pulled down the quick water in rapids. Once in the dead water, I paddled the remaining miles to Baker Lake. The wind was blowing hard that day, and it was slow going paddling into the wind with the half mile to the campsite at South Baker. Upon arriving and making camp, I had a hot dinner and a walk before climbing into my sleeping bag and sleeping soundly. May 15, 2001 I awoke to a cold, drizzling rain, which motivated me to stay in the warm cocoon of my sleeping bag for a long while. I packed up camp at 10 a.m. and finally got on the water at 11 a.m. I stuck to the shore of Baker Lake for its entire length. The ranger station lies where the St. John flows out of the lake, and all parties are requested to check in. I had a good talk with the ranger who was working there. He seemed a bit surprised that I was traveling alone, but not so surprised that he made a fuss about it. 
We talked about baiting for bear, calling turkey, and trapping as the mist outside turned to rain and the wind started to blow. After about half an hour, we said goodbye and I promised to to stop in and see him sometime. I eased the boat into the water, wearing my life vest, which is warmer than any other vest I've ever worn, under my raincoat. It made me look like a hunchback. Soon, I was into the current and drifting downstream. I looked over my shoulder as the ranger station disappeared around the bend, then put my attention back to the water ahead. The cold rain and wind kept up through the afternoon, and my feet were cold even as I passed Turner Bogan. I planned to get out of the rain and warm up in the cabin at Flaws Bogan. When I came around a bend and Flaws Bogan stood before me, my teeth were chattering and my hands were cold and raw. I landed on the bank and then went inside and sat at the white picnic table as I rubbed some warmth back into my feet. Looking out the window across the bend and upriver, I saw the size of the raindrops increasing by their rings on the water. I had a snack, put on dry wool socks, then jotted a few things down in my journal. I spent the rest of the afternoon and evening in the cabin. It was easy to imagine a small garden in the sun and a bunch of traps hung up under the eaves. May 16th, 2001. I awoke to another day of rain and wind, and as I paddled the dead water below the bogan, I could feel the fatigue creeping into my muscles. The combination of the cold, the rain, and the headwind worked to sap my energy. Around midday, I was rhythmically dipping my paddle and looking downstream when a coyote came out of the brush on the bank of the river to my left. He trotted downstream along the bank for 30 yards before again darting into the bush. I no longer noticed the rain, the cold, or the headwind. I paddled for eight hours, stopping for the night at Burtland Brook. I had originally planned to camp at Nine Mile Bridge. I had wanted to poke around some since I read Helen Hamlin's book of the same name last winter. But it was getting late, I was tired, and the campsite at Burtland Brook was set in an aspen grove, with the scent of aspen filling the air. It's a scent that stirs me deeply, reminding me of Alaska, northern Maine, in essence, the north. Along with spruce and fir, it conjures up images of the boreal forest. But while its neater-leaved neighbors delight our noses all year, the glorious scent of the aspen lasts only through spring. Quotation mark. So I sit here, my belly full, watching the river roll past, listening to the water run over the rocks and the song of a white-throated sparrow under an overcast sky. My camp is pitched and my body is tired, the good kind of tired that comes from a day of of exertion. Across the river, a woodpecker searches for insects. Other birds call, and a mosquito, the first I've seen, buzzes past. End quotation. May 17th, 2001. I was up early the next morning and had a meal in my belly and my gear in the canoe early. It had rained through the night and was drizzling as I pushed away from shore. By midday the rain had stopped, and the sun began to peek through the clouds. It was a welcome friend to have along, and I could feel it on my skin, energizing me. As I passed a nine-mile bridge, I waved to a group of campers who were having breakfast. They were the first people I had seen other than the ranger. As I continued downstream, I paddled through the big deadwater, then past Seven Islands and Simmons Farm. It was turning into a long day. I had covered a lot of distance. As I came around the bend into Bassford Rips, I had to give two strong strokes to get around a big rock that sat squarely before me. 
After long stretches of dead water, it got my blood pumping again. I stopped above the big black rapids and had something to eat. I also checked and secured my gear. Big black rapids are not long or overly difficult, being a class two. They are remote though, and an upset resulting in a damaged canoe or loss of gear could turn out to be an inconvenience or worse. I pulled around the bend on the right side of the river, then slowly eased my way down the first drop before stowing the pole and grabbing the paddle. I steered down through the remaining rapids, then passed where the big black river enters on the left. Feeling good, I decided to keep going, as I was having a glorious day and I didn't want it to end. Eventually, I stopped at the Boom Chain campsite around dusk. I had something to eat and fell into a deep sleep. May 18th. 2001. I awoke to a thick blanket of mist on the river. I couldn't see more than 20 feet into it. I could hear some rapids downstream, so I figured the prudent thing to do was to lay up until visibility improved. Eventually, the mist cleared enough for me to see 150 feet or so, and I was once again headed downstream. Soon after I was on the water, the mist burned off, and the blue sky and morning sun foretold a perfect spring day. The series of short rapids and quick water stretches kept, thing excite, kept things exciting, and I knew that big rapids lay ahead in the distance. It's obvious that you're nearing the town of Dickey when you begin to see houses along the riverbank. I continued on, around the bend of the left that leads into the big rapids. Just above the rapids is a takeout point. I stopped here, got out of the canoe, and had a drink of water. Big Rapids is described by the AMC Guide to Main Rivers as two miles of Class 3 whitewater and is the stretch of river most worthy of concern for safety and gear. Just below the rapids lies the Dickey Bridge, near which my pickup was parked. As I was standing there, a group of several cars pulled up. I said hello and made small talk, finding out that they were an AMC club and were coming up to run the rapids again. After a bit more discussion, I told them that if they wanted to ride back to their cars, I'd be happy to give them one. They thanked me, and I helped them carry their canoes down the short trail to the water. I waited for them to go ahead of me, since they were all paddling and I was planning to pull most of the way down the rapids, which is usually slower. I stuck to the left bank, going slow, until the river swung around to the right. Here the water sped up, and I stowed the pole and paddled over the drop. Once over it, I again reached for the pole and slowed myself down as I looked at the next and last drop. I let the river pick my route for me, pulling me toward the place of the most water, and once again stowed the pole in favor of the paddle. As I came out of the rapids, I continued on to Dickey Bridge, while the AMC paddler stopped to take some pictures with the rapids as a background. It's about a mile further to the bridge, and I paddle it standing in my canoe. As I came to the pull-out point, I lugged my canoe far out of the way to make room for the folks who would be arriving soon. Then I walked upstream 50 yards and jumped into the main current, floating easily on my back as the bank rushed by. After retrieving my pickup, I drove them up the road, then went back and got the rest of my gear in the canoe. I stopped at the Dickey store on my way out of town, where I bought a cup of coffee for the long ride home. So there you have it. Two more chapters down from the book On the Trail. I uh, hope you enjoyed this little uh, snapshot into the past. I know I really enjoyed traveling with Raymond Rizzi, and I always enjoy my solo trips out that I take. 
Um, the older you get, or for me anyway, the older I've gotten, the fewer opportunities there have been for those solo trips. So any of you young people out there, if you can't find somebody to go out and share those wilderness trips with, then go out and do them on your own. You learn a lot when you do things that way. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with somebody. Uh, leave us a review. You sort of know the drill at this point. I find it kind of find that stuff sort of tedious where people are always begging for likes and to subscribe. So how about this? Whatever you do, don't subscribe to this podcast. Um, don't give it a like. Don't do any of that stuff. Just listen to it. And if you enjoy it, great. And maybe I'll change my mind next week. So thanks for listening. You have been listening to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. For more information on our professional wilderness guide training programs that are college accredited and GI Bill approved, visit us on the web at jackmtn.com.